We want to welcome everyone again to the International Christian Embassy's weekly webinar held every Thursday at 4 p.m. And uh, uh, wherever you are uh, in the world, we just want to say a warm shalom from Jerusalem here in the middle of the summer. And uh, we're hoping uh, you're having a good summer season. We have a very hot topic to talk about this week. Uh, current affairs topic is Israel winning its shadow war with Iran. Sometimes to really, uh, you know, draw in an audience, it's good to ask that question, but we got to sort of first find out what do you mean by this shadow war with Iran and to help us understand this, a very special and very qualified guest, Major Elliot Shadoff of the IDF Northern Command. He's in the reserves. He's a leading Israeli military and security analyst with 35 years of experience in the Israeli army. He's written IDF field manuals. He's a trusted consultant on the war of terror, on terrorism, and he's still serving in a reserve capacity with the Israeli army's Northern Command. And uh, as we learned in, when he joined us at Envision back in January, February, made two appearances there, he's really a specialist on Hezbollah and the threat that this Iranian proxy poses uh, on Israel's northern border. It's good to have you again, Ellie. Good to be back. Thank you. Yes, yes. And uh, uh, let's uh, sort of frame this a little bit, what we're going to be discussing over recent years. Israel and Iran have been engaged in a shadow war as Jerusalem tries to block Tehran from acquiring or producing nuclear weapons to carry out its threats to destroy the Jewish state. And this behind-the-scenes conflict has involved all sorts of uh, operations, covert operations, sabotage, cyber attacks uh, between Israel and Iran going both ways on their national infrastructure, other facilities. Uh, Israel has hit Iran's top nuclear scientists and military leaders. Uh, Israel has struck many, many times Iranian forces and armaments and bases in Syria and even Iraq. Uh, Iranian drones and missile attacks have been targeted towards Israel. Iran's attempted to kidnap, kill Israelis abroad. They've been having sort of a, a sea battle back and forth between Iranian and Israeli ships on the high seas over recent years, many other forms. At the same time, American and uh, European leaders are seeking to revive the 2015 JCPOA uh, uh, nuclear agreement, a weak nuclear pact uh, that really hasn't stopped Iran from progressing towards nuclear weapons. And, uh, and this is all happening while Israel is working and engaging with its Sunni Arab neighbors, some of its new Abraham Accords friends, uh, plus Egypt and uh, interesting recent reports say Saudi Arabia is fully engaged in this to create a regional air defense system to protect uh, Israel and these Arab countries from Iran and its network of proxy militias. So what we want to really try and delve in today is, you know, where is Israel in its shadow war with Iran and all these developments? And I'm going to first ask uh, Elliot to give us some background. What do we mean by shadow war? How long has this been going on and where does it stand now? Okay, first of all, that, that was a very good partial list of what's going on, David. Uh, yes. 
and and I'm and that that's a partial list of what's public. There's as we'll go into a bit. There's a great deal that's not public. Some of which I can talk about. A lot of which I can't. But I think that, like anything else, if we start from where we are, we miss the picture. The the story goes back to the Khomeini takeover of Iran in 1979, and Khomeini's rabid anti-Semitism that dates further back than that. So the war with Iran, by the way, the war between the United States and Iran, date back to, the, to 1979-1980, uh, whether it include the hostage taking of, of the embassy, in, of the American embassy in Tehran. These are all sort of points, um, you know, milestones along the way. But essentially, Iran and Israel have been at war since the rise of the Khomeini government. Now, to understand the, the essence of the war, we have to understand that Khomeini and his followers, and, and I think it's important to, to remember that Ali Khamenei, who's today the supreme leader of Iran, inherited the position from Khomeini. In other words, between 1979 and 2022, there have only been two supreme leaders in Iran, Khomeini and Khamenei. There's no no long process of step to step to, you know, call it a game of telephone, if you will, that, that would happen over the course of that number of decades if you were changing leaders every you know, five years, let's say. Iran has repeatedly referred to Israel as a cancer that needs to be eradicated. And I think it, it's important to focus. They're not kidding. They, this is what they really mean. Um, in other words, they're not talking about an Israeli policy and they're not talking about occupation or settlements or Gaza or anything like that. They're going much more fundamental. Israel is a malignancy that needs to be wiped out. Now, what that means from the outset is that there isn't a lot to negotiate here from the Israeli perspective. In other words, you, you could argue, let's say, um, Israel's war and then peace relationship with Egypt, ultimately Anwar Sadat came down to give me back the Sinai and we can make peace because that's mm -hmm. the conflict is over a piece of territory at this point. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's fine. But if it's over Israel's existence, there's no room for negotiation compromise. There's, there's no place for discourse. I think that's, that's important to understand as, as a fundamental point because there is there, there can't be a real diplomatic element to this conflict. That's number one. Number two, Iran has had in mind Israel's destruction from the, the very beginning. It was delayed for about a decade because of its war with Iraq. Okay, in other words, here for 10 years, the Iranians and the Iraqis fought each other and Iran just didn't have the, the wherewithal to implement a real program against Israel. Although already in 1980-81, it began the establishment that came forward a couple of years later of Hezbollah in Lebanon, whose purpose is to destroy Israel. In other words, it's an extension of Iran. You mentioned earlier um, that Hezbollah is a proxy of Iran. Hezbollah is not a proxy of Iran. Hezbollah is an extension of Iran. Okay, A proxy is someone who does something that you benefit from. Hezbollah is a wholly owned subsidiary. It takes its orders directly from Tehran. It's, it, it's an Iranian militia made up of Lebanese 
operatives. So the, and it too, through the 90s and, and beyond, didn't have the ability to destroy Israel, but it was in constant violent conflict with Israel, and that continues to this day. Iran then embarked on its nuclear weapons program. And let's be clear, it is a nuclear weapons program that includes all of the components of a nuclear weapons program, meaning the fissile material, the bomb-making material, and the delivery capability, because without all those three, it's not a weapons program. Um, when, when the United States had the Manhattan Project in World War II, they built the bombs to be able to fit into B-29 aircraft. If, if a B-29 couldn't carry the bomb, they didn't have a program. Today, of course, they're talking about missiles. They have ballistic missiles. They even have intercontinental ballistic missiles that can reach the United States. That's an interesting question mark that I'll leave just hanging there for a moment. Uh, so it is a nuclear weapons program and it's an offensive program. And here too, let's be very clear. There are those apologists who say, well, Iran really just wants a couple of nuclear weapons to protect itself against American meddling and, and as a defensive method and that sort of thing. If that were true, they could have bought a weapon from Pakistan or some such place. An offensive program requires many nuclear weapons because you cannot be in a situation that you've used your weapons offensively and you have none left. Because obviously somebody's gonna to wanna to retaliate, you need the ability to retaliate against the retaliation. So that's their program. Over the past couple of decades, I'd say 15 years at least, the nuclear weapons program has gone on its course and simultaneously Iran has been doing two other things that concern Israel and should concern the world. One is that after the war that we had with Hezbollah in 2006, Iran has been significantly raising its attempts to beef up Hezbollah's offensive capability as well. And that's in terms of quantity. And I, I know what the estimates are, the official estimates. And my estimate is that Hezbollah today has something on the order of 250,000 rockets that it can fire at Israel. The official estimate is somewhat lower than that. So quantity counts, but there are, there are other elements. Their accuracy is being improved and they don't have to be super accurate. They don't need to be precision guided. They need to be good enough that when aimed at a target the size of a city, the overwhelming majority of them will fall into that city. Okay, what they've had in the past, the minority were able to hit the city. So accuracy, and again, not precision, just improvement. Devastation capability. They have far better explosive capability today than they had in the past, partly because of better explosives, partly because of more sophisticated technology, uh, thermobaric explosives. I don't want to go into all the details, but essentially what we used to call in, 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 the, uh, in the arms business in America, more bang for the buck. So a missile of a, or a rocket of a certain size now causes more devastation than a rocket of the same size 15 years ago. And last but not least, and also very important in this, the ability to launch many rockets simultaneously at a single target. That obviously not only increases the devastation capability, but it also has the effect of making the Iron Dome 
much less effective because the Iron Dome is limited in terms of its quantity capability uh, in terms of intercepting rockets. If 10 are fired, the Iron Dome is a superb weapon. If 100 are fired, not so much. Okay, not, again, not because of its quality, but because of its quantity. The third thing, so the nuclear program, the Hezbollah, and to a certain extent Hamas as well, supply program. And the third, especially since the Syrian war, basing itself, Iran, basing its military along Israel's border with Syria on the Golan Heights. Iran would like very much, and, and this is not a guess, we know this for a fact, and they're operating accordingly to establish a military presence on Israel's border in Syria. And those are the three, I would say, issues that Israel is confronting in the most direct fashion. Now, there are others. There was the, the recent threat against Israeli tourists in Turkey. I, I mark those as sort of spot issues that Israeli security needs to deal with in general around the world. Iran is just one player in this. There's Hezbollah, there's ISIS, there's Al-Qaeda. The, the, the list is you know supporting cast of thousands, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, so Israel keeps an eye on that. But those three issues are the ones that Israel has to confront directly because they're an immediate and serious strategic threat to Israeli security. As time has gone on, the, all of those have escalated. And you asked earlier about the effectiveness. Uh, here I'll repeat something that, that I've been saying for a number of years, and that is that the Israeli operations against Iran have been overall extremely successful tactically and not terribly successful strategically. In other words, the airstrikes, the assassinations, as you mentioned, the sabotage, cyber, and otherwise, uh, the destruction of weapons that have been brought in, and we'll talk about the, the attack on Damascus airport as an example, but weapons that have been brought into Syria on their way to Lebanon uh, have all been, from a tactical point of view, in my opinion, brilliant. Uh, the airstrikes have been extremely successful with very, very, we've only lost one aircraft in, in, in the years of the process. Um, the, the cyber attacks, the, the, the call it clandestine attacks, um, have worked. We don't know about failures, but there haven't been spectacular failures on the level of operatives being captured and, and so on and so forth. So overall, very, very high grades. However, it's not stopping them. It's slowing them down for sure, and gaining time certainly has a strategic value, but it's kind of half the distance to the goal line for people who understand American football. Mm -hmm. uh, they're still moving forward. And even if it's slower than they would like, uh, we're, not, we're, not, we're, we're setting them back partially, but they're moving forward across a very, very broad front. Um, and that, that basically means we're reaching, and I'm not, I, I can't date this because too, too many dynamics, too many variables, but we are certainly reaching that, that converging point where Israel will no longer be able to use finesse as it is today, um, what we call the shadow war, and it's going to have to come out of the shadows because it's just going to reach that point where poking it isn't, isn't the solution. Mm -hmm. um, 
you mentioned the uh, Damascus airport attack. I think it's a good example of a recent, uh, you know, operation in Israel's uh, shadow war. Some are calling it a proxy war, but uh, the way you no, shadow it, is better. Yeah, shadow is better. But, uh, you know, if you can give us a little more on what happened there. And I, I think that was the attack that there was an American official or someone who, who said, look, you, you don't want to be too successful in this because you might rile the Iranians into really some massive retaliation, kind of like uh, Macron saying we can't humiliate Putin too much. He might go nuclear or something. OK, so first of all, I think that the, the two, it's a bad analogy. Okay, Putin still has enormous capability that he's not using. Sure. His nuclear, for example. I don't necessarily agree with Macron's statement, mm -hmm. but there's a logic to what he said. Mm -hmm. Iran, irritating them is kind of like the story about the two men being tied to posts in front of a firing squad. And one turns to the other and says, Blindfolds. Aren't they supposed to give us blindfolds? I'm going to ask for a blindfold. And the other guy says to him, Shh, you're going to get us into trouble. <laughs> okay. Angering Iran is not a, it's not a strategic issue. They already want us dead. Mm. Now, poking them may have short-term consequences, tactical consequences, like this attempt to either kill or kidnap Israelis in Turkey. But in the grand scheme of things, um, this isn't about if we're nice to them, they're going to do less. And if we're not nice to them, they're going to do more. They're going to do exactly what they're capable of doing when they're capable of doing it. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the Damascus airport story is uh, indicative of a lot of what's going on here. Now, we, we have struck warehouses around Damascus airport now for quite a number of years when they unload things from, from planes and and typically weapons that are, that are meant for Hezbollah. For years, the Iranians have been shipping some stuff on civilian airliners. Now, this is a, this is a, a flagrant violation of international law uh, mm -hmm. across the boards in aviation law, talking about munitions mm -hmm. on civilian airliners. And they have stepped that up significantly. It's illegal for anyone to do it, but they're also breaching sanctions that they can't Correct. export weapons. Correct. Um, listen, it, it, why violate one law when you can violate five with the same act, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. uh, now, we certainly are not going to shoot down civilian airliners, and they know it. Not, not mm -hmm. for carrying weapons. I mean, if they want to use, try to use a civilian airliner the way Al-Qaeda did on 9-11, we might shoot it down. But simply using a civilian airliner as a cover for carrying munitions, we're not going to. Now, we've complained to whomever we've complained to. The effect was zero. We let the Syrians know that we will not tolerate that kind of behavior. The Syrians ignored us. So the attack on Damascus airport was meant to have a number of effects simultaneously. One was to show, hey, we're not really happy about this, and, and we're willing to, to cause a great deal of damage. And that's a, me a message to Syrian President Assad, not just to the Iranians. We're going to physically make it difficult now for you to fly stuff into Damascus because you can't use the airport. 
we are really annoyed and therefore don't calculate too carefully what we're willing to do and what we're not willing to do. Because if you thought we weren't going to do this, you were wrong. Now consider what else we might do if you threaten us enough. So I, th I think there were, there were a lot of different interlocking components in the decision to strike the airport and do the damage that was done there. And it, and, and it was not collateral damage. The runways were hit in order to put them out of action. There, there's a civilian runway at Damascus Airport and a military, and both had three big craters in them. Correct. Uh, once again, if, if they're using civilian airliners to fly in munitions, then the civilian runway has become military. Yeah. So that's what was behind it. And I don't agree with the idea of don't be too successful, because in this, uh, we really do have to be successful. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, if, um, even though Israel might have been uh, making good tactical gains, but no strategic, but the, some of the, Israel's capabilities and the way their intelligence is so good and, and using the F-35 uh, stealth bombers now, the first they've ever yes. been used in combat and all, it shows the arraignment. Doesn't it send a message to them that we have a lot more capability? It certainly does. And it has a mixed impact. On the one hand, it's shaken them up. The report today is they, uh, the Iranians arrested a general from the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, on, on accusations of, of espionage and treason for being in contact with Israel. Now, I don't know if it's true or not, but mm -hmm. they're, they're running scared on that level, and, that, and that's only a good thing. Yeah, I was going to ask you how rattled are they, because there does seem to be a a mini purge going on in, in all their military and intelligence are. Right. They're, they're definitely rattled, although here I would be careful. In regimes like this, uh, this guy may have run afoul of them in a different way, mm -hmm. and they're using this as the excuse. Mm -hmm. So, But the fact that they, that they said it shows that they're rattled by it. Um, so here again, the, you know, the, Circles within circles, uh, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't take what they say at face value, but their having said it certainly has its own value. There's no question that we have gotten in and under their skin. Um, we've established a, apparently, I mean, I, can, I only know this from results. I'm, I'm not privy to the, uh, the, the Mossad and, and other intelligence arrays there. Uh, above even even my security clearances which are reasonably high but um we've clearly set up a very very effective powerful network there that's not only intelligence gathering but also operational and those kind of networks only improve over time so we the fact that we've been doing it for years we're now beginning not just we're not beginning we're, we're seeing more and more i would say the, the impact of that as time goes on. And, the, and they know it. They're not stupid. Uh, so rattling them is a good thing. Making them have to take a thousand precautions where they used to take a hundred precautions is a good thing. Uh, on the other hand, it also teaches them or, or exposes them 
to capabilities that they can begin to think about how to counter or thwart. And this is, this is always one of the paradoxes of any sort of operation that, that, that you do, uh, no matter how successful, your enemy learns something about you every time you do something. Now, there's no avoiding that, uh, but if you're, if you're talking about the clandestine and, and you're talking about surprise, um, whether it's a new technology or whatever, um, so there, there's always the question of when do you expose what you have in operation because you know that the minute you make it public, the enemy is going to start thinking about how it's going to counter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, um, the, we're calling this a shadow war. Um, I was looking, you know, it's, uh, it's especially been going on since 2012 or so when the Syrian yeah. civil war started. Iran started moving in to help uh, prop up along with Russia. Uh, Russian troops to prop up the Assad regime, yes. and Israel and Hezbollah went in as well into Syria, and Israel started having to surgically attack some of these uh, elements to keep down the threat to Israel from them. Correct. But it's emerged more in the open. You've got and you've got all the sabotage. I mean, it's not just nuclear plants and uh, the centrifuges. It's attacks on power plants, on chemical plants, on all sorts of things in in uh, Iran, and some are even calling it like a, a new Cold War. That it's you know Iran and and Israel like proxies between the U.S. and its allies and the Russia-China alignment. How much do you see these other powers playing into this? Okay, so first of all, I think it's it's hotter than a Cold War. Yeah. Okay. If, if we use the American-Soviet period as, as the Cold War, uh, there were proxy wars. Vietnam. But Vietnam, for example. Go back to Korea. Korea. Uh, there were proxy wars for sure. There were, there were all, this, all the so-called liberation movements in uh, Central America and South America and Africa. Um, and, and, and the countering, that was proxy war. America and the Soviet Union or let's say NATO and the Warsaw Pact never actually engaged directly in combat. There was that close call in, in, with Cuba in 62, but what was interesting mm -hmm. is that both sides backed down. And I don't want to go into the details of who first and who blinked and whatever, but mm -hmm. essentially both sides decided nuclear war was not what they had on their agenda for that week, mm -hmm. uh, which is a good thing. Here, Iran and Israel are in direct combat. And we have to add the cyber theater, if you will, to the kinetic one. And that's going on. You mentioned power plants and, and, and there have been others, ports and airports. Uh, yes. And they've, they've tried stuff against us. Yeah, there, there was an uh, attack on one of the uh, water plants along the coast, desalination. And even our staff yeah. sort of uh, got impacted here about two weeks ago on a Sunday here in Talpio, where our headquarters are in Jerusalem. We had uh -huh. a siren. There was a warning right. siren. And it was this a test. Everyone's texting each other over our phones. Was this a real missile threat? And it turned out to be... Iranian cyber. 
You think it really was Iran? Setting I believe off, it was. Setting but, off the, the civilian uh, preparedness warning signal in Jerusalem and in Elath. I, that, I believe it. Interesting. Uh, I know that they are trying constantly. And it's not, you know, look, let, me, let, me, let me put it this way. Doing that is an irritant. It doesn't have many layers mm-hmm. to it. I'm okay, sure they can do it, but you then, like you say, it's exposed and Israel knows how to prevent right. it. And, and in other systems, like as you mentioned earlier, the, um, the water plant and the water system, there are many layers there. Once the first layer was breached, the Israeli cyber counter operations blocked it from getting in too far and, mm-hmm. and doing any serious damage. Israel's had a lot of close calls in Turkey yes. and there, but doing a, a, such an excellent job that yes. this is part of why Iran is replacing a lot of guys right now. Right. So, okay. So, so first of all, um, when they do something like that, we retaliate. It's, you have to. In other words, it, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it's written into the game. And in part to show you can do it to us, we can do it to you, in part to develop a certain level of deterrence. And I, I, I don't want to overstate it, but you know, d- deterrence doesn't have to be the absolute that we saw in the Cold War. It can be partial. Uh, you know what? We know you want to wipe us out, but in the meantime, don't mess with our water system mm-hmm. yes. or, or, or whatever. Uh, because if you do, we will shut down your ports for the next week. Now, is it worth it to you to, you know, to mess with us? You make the decision. And defense is part of that as well. In other words, if we, A, prevent them from doing serious damage, but retaliate for the attempt, we will reduce the number of serious attempts over time. Create cyber deterrence. Cyber deterrence and... Uh, Deterrence is, is, is a mindset. In other words, yeah. it's basically, if you start with me, it's going to cost you. Now you have to decide if it's worth starting with me. Mm. And that's, that's deterrence in a nutshell, basically. Yeah. I don't know if we've, we've coined a new phrase here, but we'll call it cyber deterrence. <laughs> I like it. Um, so that's also going on. And, and, and I think here, there's this constant behind the scenes, come back to, you know, to the shadow war, where to, to sort of carry the analogy to, to the physical world, there's stuff going on in the shadows that you don't hear about. There are airstrikes in Syria that don't make it to the news. Uh, there are strikes in Iran that don't make it to the news. There are all sorts of operations that don't make it to the news. They make it to the news typically if they happen in places where they're seen by lots of people. In other words, if you hit Damascus airport, it's kind of hard for the Syrians to hide it. Mm. We generally don't report anything. We may respond to it. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, sometimes we just smile, but we don't do the reporting of it. Uh, we learned that many, many years ago. Why give away anything? Let them, let them give away the stuff. So I would say as a rule of thumb, when you read or hear about a particular event, take into account that there are probably 10 others for each event, or maybe even more, that you haven't heard about. 
Uh, I'll, I'll use an analogy from, from other forms of warfare. Uh, I can guarantee you this, American special forces, whether it's special force, Army, Green Berets, Delta, Navy SEALs, or whomever, I don't, I don't want to leave anybody out, but the whole group of special operations are working around the clock around the world and you don't hear, nobody hears about them unless there is a spectacular failure mm. or the occasional spectacular success like taking out an Osama bin Laden. Mm -hmm. The rest, silence. And use the same rule of thumb here that there's stuff going on all the time, attacks virtually every night mm -hmm. uh, in Syria, and you're just not hearing it, that's the shadow. Every now and then, something will pop out of the shadow and a bit of light will shine on it, and that'll become the focal point uh, and, and raise issues like what we're discussing now. Okay, if this is, uh, you know, it has wider implications, it does involve the West, it does involve Russia, China, and I, I got a couple questions in that regard. Okay. Um, I don't want to get too deep into what's happening in Ukraine, but you know, if there's anything you want to share about what you've observed there concerning Russian weapon systems that are also in the hands of Iran and Syrians that Israel's dealing with, what you've learned there, and has Russia dragging itself into a prolonged conflict in Ukraine. Unexpectedly, they thought it would last a, a lot shorter. How yeah. has that changed the dynamic of the threat Israel's facing on, up there where you live on the northern front? Okay, so first of all, let, let's start with the weapon systems. We've been making a mockery of Russian weapon systems for years. In other words, mm -hmm. here, um, I can't say that I'm terribly surprised by the poor performance of Russian equipment. Our, I mentioned earlier, we've been launching airstrikes against targets in Syria and other places. All of the air defenses in this area are made in Russia, whether origins are Russian, whether they're Iranian or Syrian or whomever. And they have essentially failed miserably against us. And that was before Israel started flying the F-35s. That's right. Way prior to the F-35. This is against F-15s and F-16s obviously with electronic countermeasures of all types, not just on the planes, but being used in other places. Uh, it's, it's not a great secret that Israel's uh, electronic capabilities are superb. Um, and they have essentially thwarted the entire air defense system in the surrounding area that's been supplied by the Russians, which has upset the Russians terribly. Even before the Ukraine invasion, uh, the Russians were very, very adamant about our stopping in part, there are a number of reasons for it, but in part because we were making a mockery of their equipment. There was a, an attack on the port in Latakia, which yeah. Russia sort of said it sealed our air defenses are so tight and Israel went in and right. embarrassed the Russians. Hi, here we are. Yes. Yes. Um, and the, the systems have, have failed to do anything. And, and by the way, here's, here's, here's an interesting one. You'll see many reports where the, the Syrians or the Iranians say, our air defenses chased away the attackers. That means they missed. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so having said that, 
I'm not particularly shocked that Russian equipment is not performing superbly well in Ukraine. What I am surprised at, and I think everybody is, including Putin, uh, maybe Zelensky may be an exception to this, is how well the Ukrainians have held together and how poorly the Russians have performed. Especially uh, I, in, the, in the air war. No, also in the ground war. On the ground war too. Um, now, here, note I use two different terms, held together and performed, keeping in mind that the Ukrainians' mission is to thwart the Russian attack. Okay, so they have an inherent advantage as long as they can stay cohesive mm. and use the and, and have sufficient munitions and material and equipment. The Russians are the ones who have to execute. It's, it's like in any sports, I hate to use the analogy, mm -hmm. uh, it's the offense that has to score, the defense just has to thwart it. Mm. So they do have a certain inherent advantage as far as that goes. But Russian performance has been abysmal. Um, their, their command, their tactics, their morale, their training, I mean, across the boards, I, they're, they're, I'm a tough grader in general, but, but I'm, you know, these are D's and F's on the report card pretty mm. much across the boards. And under those circumstances, the, the Ukrainians don't have to be superb, they just have to be competent. Mm. You know, it's, it's like the old joke, you don't have to unrun, outrun the, the bear, you just have to outrun your friends. So what uh, Israel is, is facing there in the north and even Hezbollah, whatever, having weapon systems sort of Soviet era or Soviet design sort of weapons, Israel can take some courage. And how, um, how has Russia's preoccupation with Ukraine uh, affected the Russian presence in Syria? Okay. First of all, you mentioned something. Remember that Hezbollah is not a true war-fighting organization. Hezbollah's real danger to Israel, its, it's overriding danger to Israel, is its rocket capability, and that doesn't have to be terribly sophisticated. Mm -hmm. um, the Russian story is a little bit different. It's my belief, and I've written about this in the past, and I've spoken about this for, for a number of years, that much of Putin's strategy, including the invasion of the Ukraine, of Ukraine, is to shore up his position vis-a-vis -vis his naval base in Crimea and Sevastopol, because his real strategic objective at this stage is to challenge the United States in the Eastern Mediterranean. Hmm. And he has that quasi-capability. He wanted to bolster it. And here, let's, let's keep in mind that in order to challenge America in the Eastern Mediterranean, the Russians don't need an aircraft carrier to challenge the American carrier in the Sixth Fleet. What they need are some good cruisers, of which they now have fewer than they did when they started, and land-based aircraft in Syria, but a good supply system that allows them to run stuff out of Russia and directly into the Mediterranean which they don't have at the moment because they don't have a land bridge between Russia and Crimea. And it's my analysis and belief that the real goal of this, now that doesn't mean he, would, he wouldn't have accepted other victories, but the real objective of this whole operation is to create that corridor along the North shore of the Black Sea, mm -hmm. which is why the fighting in Mariupol, the Southern Donbass, uh, all those areas, if you look at where they are on the map, 
it's that corridor where the real fighting is taking place. Um, that's his, his grand objective. He's, he may get it. He may get it by simple weight of arms. Uh, the Russians can take very high losses. I don't know how long they'll, they'll tolerate it from Putin, but they can certainly overpower Ukraine in that corridor. Now, in the meantime, he's completely committed there, which means he has less capability to commit into this, in this area at the moment. Mm -hmm. He's threatening a lot. And here's where we get into a strategic paradox. And this was Macron's point. As I said, it, it had logic, although I don't necessarily agree with his conclusion. A threatened Putin is a dangerous person. The Russian system does not have a particularly uh, generous leadership retirement program. <laughs> it usually has a lot to do with a nine millimeter bullet. And Putin does not want to be forcibly retired. And the question comes up, what happens if He's faced with that threat. Does he use nuclear weapons? Does he launch some sort of dangerous adventure and cause lots of damage, lots of grief, lots of bloodshed because he'd rather you know, play, spin the roulette wheel, even on, on, in low probability, than face the certainty of, of being taken out uh, you know, by, by his leadership? So he's dangerous. I don't think that means that, we, that Israel or anybody else should roll over and allow him to do whatever they want, whatever he wants. But I do think it's something we need to take into account because he does have, unlike the Iranians, he does have this massive nuclear capability at his fingertips. Okay. Yeah, the, the question is, uh, um, back on our, our main topic here, how close is Iran to having nuclear weapons? Even uh, IDF, uh, even the Israel's defense minister, Benny Gantz, says that they're within two months if they wanted to break out, at least yes. of having a warhead. And you still need a delivery system, which may be a year or two away, as you were right. mentioning earlier. But that's close. And this brings up, you know, what is the Biden administration trying to accomplish in both helping Israel pre prepare itself for long range attacks against Iran and helping build for finally coming a democratic regime, helping the Arab, the Sunni Arab states prepare for it at the same time, trying to revive that old 2015 week nuclear pact. Okay. So let, let me, let me start with the local question. I, you mentioned the Sunni Arab regimes, and I, I think we should be careful here. Um, I would under or downplay the Sunni part of it and play up the Arab part of it. Yes. Uh, I think that's something that's, that's missed in the West, even though there are people who know it. Iran is not an Arab country. It's Persia. It's an outsider. By the way, Turkey is not an Arab country. They're both Muslim countries, but they're not Arab countries. Mm -hmm. So the Persian threat to the Arab world goes beyond the vagaries of Sunni versus Shiite. 
And there are Shiites in the Arab world who oppose the Iranians. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should mention there are Shiites in, in not just in the Arab world who oppose the Iranian Shiism because Khomeiniist Shiism is not universally accepted in the Shiite world. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to go into all of that because it's very, very complicated. Mm-hmm. But my point here is that we need to be very, very careful in categorizing why countries or groups behave a certain way. Uh, it, it's not necessarily the, the most, the, the, the simple mm-hmm. definition. Okay. The, the Gulf states, the Saudis uh, in particular, are wary of the Iranians as a Persian invasion into the Arab world. And Egypt falls into the same category. Um, The Iranian interest in this region is imperial. Remember, the Persian Empire was the Mm -hmm. team to beat here for about a thousand years. And and they want to rebuild it. I will say similar with with categorical differences, but similar to the Turkish interest in rebuilding its empire. Um, And I I think that 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 kind of imperial aspiration is lost on Western thinking. Mm. It's very, very consciously looked at in this region. So part of, and I I, I don't think there's, there's one reason, but part of the, call it the softening of the Gulf states and the Saudis toward Israel, and to a certain extent, the, even the Egyptians, although we've been at peace with them since 1979, the improvement of relations more recently has a lot to do with local geostrategic issues. Mm-hmm. And as, as I've told my military and college students repeatedly over the years, when somebody is holding a gun to your head and says, I want to kill you, it really simplifies your decision making. <laughs> and these countries that, you know, that used to rail about the, the Israelis and the Zionists and the occupation, all of a sudden, wait a minute, that doesn't really matter anymore. <laughs> these people want to kill us. And, you know, is, is Israel a good or a bad ally in this? And, and the answer is good. Um, and all of a sudden, all that other stuff has fallen by the wayside. So that's that's on the on the, the, the Arab side. The Biden administration, I think, is trying to do something that there's defies an old Yiddish um, rule, which is you can't dance simultaneously at two weddings. And I think the, the Biden administration wants to dance simultaneously at a number of weddings, and it just doesn't work. They understand perfectly well, and here I'll give them, you know, credit where credit is due, that Iran is an existential threat to Israel, and Israel sees it that way. And um, Israeli and American security relationships have developed and institutionalized themselves very, very well over the past couple of decades. This is not a Biden or Trump or Obama or Bush phenomenon. I take us back for four administrations. It's much more on the administrative command sharing level. So they, they take it seriously. We ta- they know we're taking it seriously and they're being helpful as much as they are uh, in dealing with that. 
The Americans, unfortunately, like the Europeans, still believe that an agreement has value, even if it's with a regime that has absolute zero credibility in keeping its word. And that's a common error in, I'm going to use, I'm going to use this term, it's a technical term, I don't want it to be mis misunderstood, in the liberal international relations philosophy. This is not to be confused with conservative liberal American politics. Where liberal philosophy based in international relations and strategy basically says uh, wars are caused by misunderstanding. And as long as we can sit and talk and work it out, nobody really wants to go to war. Yeah, being fair and open-minded with each other. Exactly. Yes. And it's very hard to get, and I, I can say this as, as an Israeli who's been dealing with this in Israel for decades, you know what? I'm cynical enough, and yet it's hard to get your head around the idea that there are lots of people around in, in this neighborhood who spend their entire waking lives plotting to kill you. It's not a comfortable thought. And it, it's really, it's hard to, 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 to internalize it. It's much nicer to think, you know what, maybe I wronged them somewhere and if I apologize and offer them a cup of coffee, we can work it out. Hmm. And I think a lot of American diplomatic thinking comes out of that kind of a mindset. Yeah, yeah. You, you're projecting sort of Western values and all onto people in the East. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I know that, um, I mean, there were the, uh, open discussions here in Israel over the last year or so. Is Israel really prepared to do a long-range strike against Iran's nuclear program? I think we talked about this in January and February at Envision, you and I, uh, in a webinar that Israel needed to, you know, the right planes, they needed uh, to have refueling capabilities and they needed uh, bunker buster bombs from the US. And it looks like some of this has been solved that they've announced yes. publicly that the F-35 stealth bomber, fi fighter bomber, can make it all the way there and back without refueling. And right. that the, the 2000 pound bunker buster bombs can now fit in that cargo bomb bay. Uh, bomb bay within the F-35 so that as you're carrying it, it doesn't expose the, you to radar. Correct. And so uh, even putting that out in public and doing the largest exercises ever with US and regional cooperation in recent months, it looks like the Americans are signaling, hey, we do have a, a stick with Israel in, in dealing with the Iranian plan, but is that just a stick to then try and draw them back into talks? You know, sticks can have multiple purposes. Yeah. Um, so it, I'm sure from the American point of view, that's part of the calculation. And, mm -hmm. and that makes sense. In other words, from, from where they're sitting, I can't, I can't dispute it. If the Iranians don't want to come with the, come for the carrot, then let's get them to the table with the stick. Mm -hmm. uh, it's one of the reasons they came in the first place in the first JCPOA because of the sanctions and, and, and wanting them to be lifted. So, the point is, though, that if they don't, the stick can be used. 
Mm-hmm. Now, from the Israeli perspective, that stick has got to be there. Uh, and it's got to be as big and as hard as you can possibly make it. You asked if Israel is ready. I, I will tell you that from my perspective, any country that says that it's ready to go to war is kidding itself. Mm-hmm. But you have to, and you have to go with what you've got. Does Israel have the capability to cause significant damage to the Iranian nuclear development program? I believe the answer is yes. Uh, I don't think it's limited, and I won't go into the details on this. You'll just have to take this one at face value. I don't think it's limited to aircraft. Uh, there, there are other aspects that come into play. I will mention cyber because that's that's part of it, but it's not not just those two. And any calculation of Israel's capability that, that is limited to how many F-35s and how much they can carry is missing many facets of the overall picture. Cruise missiles, even from subs, uh, suicide drones, lots of ways. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I, I'm just going to nod to everything. I'm not going to. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, I don't know if you've seen Top Gun, but. Uh, I have. That, that I really have. got me thinking, this new, the new Top Gun Maverick. Uh, that's all Israeli concept and. Yes. And, uh, yeah. Um, very troubling, exciting to watch, but also troubling if you live in the region. Um, I wanted to ask you back in January, we mentioned that uh, Israel was developing a new laser system to help supplement Iron Dome and would be much cheaper and maybe more effective. Uh, Prime Minister Bennett just, uh, you know, presided over a, a, a test, a successful test of it and said this is a game changer. What do you think? I don't believe in terms like game changer. Um, I think it's an added layer. I think that it will certainly reduce the impact of Hezbollah's capabilities. I have to say full disclosure, I'm I'm a low-tech guy. Uh, So the higher the tech, the less trust I put in it. Mm -hmm. But having said that semi-facetiously, it's also my, um, my belief pr- projection, my analysis, that as technology pro- progresses and gets higher, its half-life gets shorter. Mm-hmm. Okay, in other words, the, the counter to it Is will come up that much quicker. faster. Yeah, I think that's now, so true in all sorts of new innovations. Exactly. I mean, look... Once upon a time, we had telephones. We had the same phone on our walls for years. Yeah. Now, these things go obsolete on us, what, in two years? Yes. If we're lucky. Hmm. Um, so technology is an answer. It's not the answer. Mm-hmm. And the, the solution or the, the counter to the technology is not always going higher. Sometimes it's going lower. Yes. Uh, and then, you know, the balloons coming out of Gaza. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Low tech. Right. Yeah. So uh, tunnels. I understand these lasers are shooting down the, the balloons, but you still get a fire somewhere. Right. So A, you still, it's not, it's not a perfect solution. There is no perfect solution. Yeah. Um, the question that will remain is still, 
how effective against huge numbers of targets simultaneously? Yeah. Uh, and what happens when they start targeting the, the lasers? Mm-hmm. And if they have to, if, if the lasers have to use their, their defense to protect themselves, can they also be used to protect other things? Again, I raise these as questions because these are, these are classic counter questions to any sort of mm-hmm. system. Yeah. I think one of the um, real uh, shocking news, I don't know if it's shocking, but it was really surprising and for me encouraging that uh, um, that uh, Israel's chief of staff, Kohavi, met in March with uh, uh, a number of general uh, generals from Arab uh, countries in the region, including the Saudi, uh, his counterpart, chief of yes. staff, the Saudi army. And there was even talk uh, that uh, this new Israeli laser system, I guess being developed with some American help, that it could even be deployed in Saudi Arabia. That's a huge step between for towards rapprochement towards them. It was good, you know. It, it comes back to my earlier comment about the gun to the head. Yes. Uh, you know, the Saudis might hate us, but they hate the Houthis' rockets falling on them much worse than they hate us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's uh, the Saudis have their own shadow war with Iran. With Iran. And, that's right. And even even the Houthis down in Yemen, some say they now have rockets that they can even fire at Israel. Yes. Yeah. But well, they made very clear that was their objective. Yeah. There's so much more we could talk about here, Elliot. The the Iranian strategy of, of uh, drone swarms along with cruise missile missiles all showing up about the same time like they did in the oil fields in eastern yes. Saudi Arabia. They've tested that a little against Israel. So far, Israel's onto it. Uh, the, these attempted kidnappings in, in uh, Istanbul, the, the whole turnaround of Turkey back to warming relations with Israel now. I don't know how much that had to do with Netanyahu being out of power. And if he gets back in, is Erdogan really going to want to deal with someone that he really, uh, you know, uh, uh, turned his back on over recent years? So many things we could also talk about, but just to sort of summarize this question, is Israel winning its proxy war with Iran? I think it uh, it sort of uh, hinges on how you define winning, but you're saying a lot of tactical successes, yes. but Iran is still progressing. And do you, think, do you think Israel can stop uh, Iran's nuclear program, whether it's diplomatically, cyber, or direct, or covert? I think ultimately we're going to have to, and we'll have to pay whatever the price is to do it. Yeah. And how, one of the questions that came in, how, how safe is Israel right now? Is it vulnerable uh, during this time when we're now going to new elections and we won't have a new government? We won't have elections till November, and you might not have a government till January, February. But, You're optimistic. Uh, yeah, it, it may be Israel's in better hands. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Look, there, uh, it, the, it's a long answer that I'll try to make very, very short. Yeah. Uh, there's a, the government is now a caretaker government. It, has, it doesn't change. Uh, but Israel, unlike the United States, but similar to some parliamentary systems, and each system has its own quirks to it, the Israeli government is really led by committee. 
And the security, what's called a security cabinet is exactly the same today as it was yesterday. And it will remain the same until a new cabinet is established with a new government. Mm -hmm. So Israel is, is no less safe today than it was yesterday. Um, and I, I consider Israel to be a very safe place. Um, the, the change in government or the, the elections coming up certainly will have an impact on who runs the country, but it doesn't really change the strategic threats we're facing. And I don't think it will have any impact whatsoever on how Israel confronts those threats. Hmm. Because that, that, that's a much more sort of solid level of, okay. of decision making, but you don't think it's opened up uh, what what the per, the Iranians could perceive as a window of vulnerability here in Israel. Look, the Iranians could perceive it. They're uh, more in the think... long game, though, aren't they? They. But right, they're a they're in the long game, and I I believe that the minute they believe they have the capability, they're going to use it. They're not they're not waiting for weakness. Yeah. Hmm. So. Uh, Again, I, I don't I don't see the the domestic political situation here having any real impact. Um, mm -hmm. After we have a new government, you could ask me the same question. I'll tell you what I think about whoever is running the country. But in the meantime, we're we're very much in the same place as we were. Okay, this is an issue that uh, hopefully we don't have to revisit this too soon or too often. Uh, but it is something that people really need to be aware of. I, you know, Israel, uh, so many new headlines, breaking news over recent weeks, this news that Israel sent its largest force ever to go do some landing, including paratroopers, whatever, landing in the mountains of Cyprus, in the yes. middle of Cyprus, to do a massive uh, land exercise simulating the hilly terrain of what they'd encounter against Hezbollah in Lebanon. Yes. That, that's huge news that you don't do that uh, just to try just, it. It's right. expensive. They had to get Cy Cyprus's agreement to this. And uh, so we're talking about a, a real, you know, we call it a shadow war, but over the last three or four years, it's really emerged more and more out into the open. I was, uh, Elliot, I was looking for a timeline of, say, a lot of the major events in this. Uh, I don't know if you have some source that you say people should follow, but uh, even Wikipedia has an entry. Yes. And they divide it up to between covert and now openly emerging. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, no, there's war. definitely a shift. I, I would say to, to people who are, who are watching, listening, uh, don't get hung up too much in the details because you can mm -hmm. get lost in them. Mm -hmm. Try to try to look at the, at, at the larger picture as much as you can. Incorporate new new information into that picture. It's very easy to drown in, in, in the details of mm -hmm. uh, how many craters are there in the you know in the runways in Damascus hours. Airport. Yes. Uh, and I'm not saying to ignore that, but it's, it, that's not really the issue. Uh, Yes, it is certainly moving from the more covert, the deeper shadows, further and further into the open. Mm -hmm. uh, and in part because of intensity, in part because of frequency, in part because the Iranians have, have been poked hard enough and too bad about them, that they're responding with things like that operation in, in Turkey, the attempt on the Israelis there. Um, so I think we're going to see more 
more of that in the open because it's it's, it's simply harder to hide uh, and to keep it in the shadows. So their tentacles, uh, um, former prime minister now, or he's still prime minister today, Bennett, calls yes. it the, the uh, optical, the tentacles of the octopus. Right, and, go, and going for the head. And Iran, Hezbollah goes to Venezuela, to Argentina, to yes. Africa, where anywhere they Europe. can, I think east of us somewhere, in Malaysia somewhere, trying to target Israelis. Uh, yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. Just be aware of your situation, our dear Israeli friends, wherever you're traveling. And we're going to have to leave it there. We really thank you for your time. Uh, My pleasure. IDF Major Reserve Elliot Chadoff of the IDF Northern Command. And uh, we just appreciate your time, your expertise, helping us to understand this. Thank you. My pleasure, David. Okay. All right. Thanks to everyone for joining in today. We're going to be back next Thursday for another ICEJ weekly webinar. Also next uh, Wednesday, the day before at 4 p.m. as well, we're going to have our global prayer gathering. Please join us for that. For those who are interested, we also have right now our Rosh Hodesh prayer vigil. Uh, people, Christians from uh, dozens and dozens of countries around the world uh, helping carry out online a 24-7 prayer vigil for Israel and the region and your own countries. Uh, from uh, We started yesterday and we're going about nine or ten days this month straight on according to the Jewish New Moon, Rosh Odish prayer. And you can go to our um, uh, website, icj.org, to find out more about that. And lastly, I just want to mention that uh, we're about 100 days away as of today from the Feast of Tabernacles. We're trying to hold our first physical in-person feast in, since 2019, and we've got a great program planned for you, a whole week of celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles here in Israel, starting in the Galilee for two days, worship events on the Sea of Galilee, then moving up to Jerusalem, and then on down to the Negev uh, to celebrate Israel as the land of promise. So join us for the feast. You can find out more at feast.icej.org. Thank you for joining us here on the ICEJ weekly webinar. Shalom.